from Kurtco Media. You can see the VW is really all in on electrification, and that's across many of our brands. Really, after about the 2030, 2035 timeline, you look to see that we'll be completely focused on producing EVs. That was the voice of Dustin Krause, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross. Welcome to Cars That Matter. I'm here with my guest, Dustin Krauss, Director of E-Mobility with Volkswagen of America. This is going to be an electrifying conversation, and pardon that pun, but it really is all about EVs. Dustin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm amazed that you actually have the wherewithal to be here because you have just come in from a 7,600-mile cross-country drive around New York City to Sacramento and back. You've got to be a little weary, but it sounds like you had a good drive. What? did you drive? Let's start with that. So we drove the new 2021 VW ID4, the all-electric compact SUV that we've just released to the public. So like you said, New York to Sacramento, the long way. We drove, started in New York City and went all the way down. We went to DC, then across into the Midwest, into Chicago, then down the country, into Florida. And we were many days in until we started heading west. Then we went across the country, had a lot of cool detours and adventures there, and spent about just under 20 days on the road. It sounds really like a dream trip. I think every Every driver is always threatened to be able to take a month off and actually see the country by road and the way that it was maybe meant to be seen instead of flying over, driving through and really getting some sense of the nature, the variety, the culture, everything, the food. We saw everything. We saw every kind of weather. We started in New York, a beautiful spring day in New York. But by the time we got to Chicago, we had three inches of snow. We drove through tornado warnings in Nashville. We had beautiful weather, you know, tropical weather in Florida. We saw the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, the Pacific. Ocean. We went to Disney World, Disneyland. I mean, we went everywhere. And then we had some really cool detours too. We went through Marfa, Texas, which is a cool art community in the kind of the southwest corner of Texas. Yes, it is. It's a very interesting venue. Some great conceptual installations and whatnot. I mean, it's a place to go. Absolutely. And West Texas is not a place known for electric vehicle infrastructure, right? So we wanted to prove that too. And certainly getting to Marfa is off the beaten path. It's really outside of Big Bend National Park there. All this stuff is possible because I've worked in electric vehicles for the better part of about 15 years now. And it's always the how far, how long, how fast questions. But then it's like, but what if I want to take a road trip? So we wanted to take that right off the table and say, hey, you can do a road trip easily. It doesn't take a lot of planning. It's easy to do. And we don't have to do this road trip. It's just kind of a speed run across the country just to prove that we can do it. We can have a real adventure. And I think that was the purpose here. We went to 20 states. We drove over 7,000 miles, like you said, and we had a really fun time doing that. Let's actually talk about something you brought up just now, Dustin, that so-called range anxiety that's kept so many people at bay from the concept of an EV, an electric vehicle. The purpose of this mission really was to dispel that whole range anxiety question? Yeah, I think it's to show the capability of the car overall. And certainly range is one of the big things that keep people from maybe considering an electric car. I think it's really three things. It's first, the price point. Electric cars for a while have been pretty costly. You've got to think about some of the cars that have come out in the last 10 years have been more expensive than their internal combustion counterpart. So I think what we did at Volkswagen is try to solve price, range, and charging. And we wanted to show all three of those things with this vehicle. And then kind of the fourth thing is the capability, because we drove in every kind of weather. We drove through the desert. We drove through mountains. We drove through large cities. We wanted to show that this car can conquer anywhere, and it can do it at an affordable price. It has a great range. And then when it comes to charging, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You can really 
charge anywhere. And you can charge at these fast charging stations that are across the country, even in places like in the middle of Texas, and drive from New York to California if you wanted to. As a guy who does not own an electric vehicle, I want to learn a little more and maybe share with our audience, if you can, the significance of not just the ID4, but what it really represents. As I understand, it's more than a new model. It's really kind of a new chapter for Volkswagen. Obviously, the elephant in the room is the most recent April Fool's prank that became literally a worldwide phenomenon where Volkswagen was changing its name to Volkswagen. And of course, I didn't buy it for a minute, but it's amazing how many people did because maybe, just maybe, there's more to it than just a joke. Yeah, and I think that was an incredible thing. I've worked at VW now for about three years. Everybody knows that I work here, friends, family, and the rest, and I've never had so many people reach out to me. I was like, what is this about? And honestly, everyone thought it was so cool. Like, wow, this is cool. Are you part of this? Are you doing this? I can't say anything about it, but to me, it was to show that there are so many people out there that still have that VW story, that still love the brand so much. In my life, VW was kind of my first first thing that I lusted after. It was the thing that represented freedom to me as a teenager when I was in high school. The thing I wanted was a VW so I could have the freedom and go where I want and, and have a car. And I think that represents that to a lot of people. So people had a reaction about it one way or another, because either they have an affinity towards the VW brand and they didn't want to see the name changed, or they're really excited that this brand is in complete transition. This is a brand that's completely evolving and now going a different way. And I think it was a good story both ways because of that. So it got people to certain certainly have a discussion, uh, maybe think about Volkswagen for the first time in a long time. And all the reactions that I have are actually quite positive. I thought it was fun. At the end of the day, too, VW is a brand that's known for making fun cars, for being a company that in terms of our advertising for decades and decades, it's been really fun. And I think that's a place where we feel comfortable. And it's a good place that I think we're getting back to. Those are great observations. And certainly it's not inauthentic. Clearly the greatest advertising in the history of the automobile belongs to Volkswagen with the Beetle. We've talked a lot about Volkswagen history on this show before with some researchers and experts, both the beloved Kafer, the Beetle, and uh, and also, of course, the bus, which had so much swirling around it, both culturally and whatnot, in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. I mean, it's impossible to really assess the history of the automobile without writing two very large chapters about two very important Volkswagens. And it sounds like this is essentially part three, if you will, with this ID4. Tell me how it's different from other EVs? I mean, you alluded to the cost, and certainly the 800-pound gorilla is this oddity called Tesla. They are essentially luxury cars, if you will. They're not for a working stiff because they have a stiff price attached to them. And they're also not made by a company that, for whatever its multi-zillion dollar valuation on Wall Street, is necessarily guaranteed to be in the car business in a few years. They may be in a whole different business. I have a feeling Volkswagen's going to be around. With that armchair quarterbacking on my part, what makes your car different? The amount of care that we took in to make sure that we have a complete package for a customer to transition to an EV. The fact is EVs are still a very small percentage of overall market share of the industry. I think VW has a responsibility as one of the largest car makers in the world to accelerate that transition as we see it's good for the end user, it's good for someone driving the car, and it's good for the planet. And I think that's really been our core focus. How do we make that transition to an EV like, oh, well, this now makes sense. The first thing that you do is you've got to get it into a price point that is reasonable 
and comparable to the other vehicles in that same segment. So when you look at the segment that we're in, the ICE, the internal combustion cars that we would compete against are our own, like the VW Tiguan, and then maybe a Honda CRV, a Toyota RAV4, those type of vehicles. And equipped like the ID4 is, they're somewhere in the high 20s, low 30s. The ID4 comes in at a base price of under $40,000, but then there's a $7,500 tax credit, which brings it down to $32,500. And in some states that you have additional credits to bring it under $30,000. And that's not considering cost of ownership. Obviously, the cost of ownership of an electric car is much less than an internal combustion. So really, you're getting close to price parity with those major competitors out there. So it's that time where it's like, okay, maybe a few thousand dollars more or really close in price based on where I live to maybe something I'm driving now, a CRV RAV4. But the other thing is, is it out there? Is it so funky looking? Does it scream, I'm an electric car? That's another thing I think that we did make the car look futuristic. I think it's properly futuristic, but it isn't like hits you over the head, I'm an EV. It has a pretty typical cues from this compact SUV segment, which is the largest segment in automotive sales. For the cars that are being sold right now, the biggest segment is this segment that we came into. And that's important as well. So where's the biggest part of the market? How can we make the biggest impact? And that's what we look to do as well. You know, the other thing is it's got to be able to work. It can't have 70 miles of range. It can't be compromised in some way. So I think in terms of performance, in terms of size, in terms of range, not compromised in any way. And then we also included three years of charging with the car, which I thought was a really important thing because it allows somebody to now do what we did, drive across the country almost 8,000 miles for free. So not only are you driving zero emissions, you're driving zero emissions, zero cost if you want to do a long trip, which again, really starts to say, well, what are the things that are keeping me from getting an electric car? It's been the price, it's been the range, it's been where do I charge? We went after and we tried to tackle all three of those objections and say, how do you handle those? Let me ask you a question for our audience and for my own edification. Do I unplug my electric lawnmower and plug this thing into a ratty 12-gauge extension cord? Or does this require a little more substantial juice? The good news is with an EV, really any EV, you can charge on a normal 110 volt out. The bad news about that is it charges really pretty slowly on a standard outlet. So if you're plug it into a normal outlet like you have in bubbling your office there, it would charge about three miles for every hour you have it plugged in. Now you're thinking, oh, wow, that's really slow. But I think the average commute for someone is only about 40 miles a day. So if you're doing an average commute, you actually could live like that. But what we recommend is installing a 220 volt plug in your garage. It's known as a NEMA 1450. You can then plug a wall box into that or get a mobile connector and then charge the car much more rapidly at a rate up to about 30 some miles an hour. So then you're really charging quite quickly. Sure. Now on the charging that's included with the car, you're going to charge at miles per minute because it's DC fast charging. So these public stations that are out there that this service is included with the ID4 through a company called Electrify America can charge the car from 5% to 80% in just a little over 35 minutes. So you go in for a coffee or a burrito and you come out and your car's gassed up. Is it going to be feeding at the same trough as other EVs? Or as I understand it, some of these cars have their own special connectors and they don't like to fraternize with others. <laughs> the Tesla product has its own special connector in the US. Every other manufacturer uses a standardized connector type, which is a combined charging system connector. So every other one will use that. And you're right, we'll sort of, at these Electrify America stations, will run off the same trough, as you say. But they're so powerful that really, even if they're completely full, you're still going to be able to pull the full power out of the car. So that shouldn't be a concern. I was just at one yesterday in Virginia, in Richmond, and there were eight stations. So quite a bit of a stations available, given where we are with electric 
electric vehicle adoption, and then room to grow as well. I can't help but think of those great David Attenborough documentaries in Africa where it's parched and all of a sudden there's a rain and there's a great big watering hole and pretty soon you've got giraffes and zebras and hippos and lions all literally drinking from the same trough. They're all so happy to get a cocktail. It must be the same way with these electric cars. With that, let me ask you, because you'd alluded to this before, what are the model year targets in terms of percentages of EVs in the VW fleet that you guys are projecting? In other words, by 2025, by 2030, what are the overarching goals that you can speak to? Well, like I said, I think this is really a transition for our company. You can see the VW is really all in on electrification, and that's across many of our brands. But as we get into that 2025, 2030 timeframe, we'll look to have many more models. And then you'd really start to see the transition off some of our, think of the big ones that we've got out there. We've got the Jetta, we've got others. You likely will see a counterpart to those vehicles in electric form. Really after about the 2030, 2035 timeline, you look to see that we'll be completely focused on producing EVs. So in terms of percentage, it's tough because we have to think about a few things there. We think about infrastructure for charging as we get more cars in the road. We think about how many models, what factories we have going, but really in that next 10 to 15 year timeline for VW, it looks to see as really a transition completely to the entirety of the fleet into an electric fleet. I think that, again, we have the responsibility in this industry to lead in that way. That's certainly the ambition. It brings up the question, how the U.S. differs from other world markets. So for instance, you just came off a 7,000 mile road trip. You drive 7,000 miles from any point in Germany and pretty soon you're in the ocean long before you get there. So in America, we're challenged with these distances. I guess it's like going across the Mongolian desert or part of Australia or something. You've got a different set of circumstances there than trying to get around some medieval city in Belgium. How is the market in America being addressed differently? Or is this intended to be a world car? It's a world car for sure. You certainly see the markets like in China and the US to actually be similar in the kind of product that they're looking for. SUVs are very popular in both markets. And this car is already tending to be very popular here in the US and across the world. We've got a ton of demand. It's going to be how do we produce the vehicles to meet the demand? And that's a good place to be. The US market is a good one for us. The daily commute for an average American is about 40 miles. So for an EV, that's perfect. And to have 250 miles of range, that's quite an insurance policy for somebody that's probably only driving 40, 50 miles a day. If you need to, you of course can drive much more, very similar to a tank of gas, 250 miles. And then if you need to fill up, we now have DC fast charging stations all over the country. So I think we've solved those major issues and we've got the demand, but how do you grow on that? How do you make more models? How do you expand on that demand and make people comfortable with it so that they stay in electric cars? We do know though that when a consumer switches to an EV, they generally don't want to switch back. That's quite an endorsement. And I guess once they drag me kicking and screaming into the EV camp, I may have to sign up too. As an old guy who's grown up with cars that make a lot of racket and had carburetors and leaked and stalled and did all kinds of things, there's sort of a love-hate relationship with that. And obviously the EV is, well, essentially, as they've often said, it's sort of a computer on wheels that happens to be a car. Well, I have an old, leaky, loud, (laughs) carbureted car in the garage too, but that's only for the weekends. For daily driving, I don't think it can be beat. And it's okay to like both. We're in a world where things are transitioning. And once you drive an EV, I think it's so clearly almost in every dimension better in terms of handling NVH, like how quiet the car is, comfortable, technology. They're really just quite phenomenal. And I would invite you to drive it because I think you'll see the same thing. And you can still keep that loud, leaky car in the garage and you keep that for the weekends, probably like you are anyways. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. 
Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Dustin Krauss. You alluded to the handling and the quiet. Obviously, it's got a low center of gravity with those batteries. Let's talk about batteries for a minute. That's sort of like the secret sauce that makes all of this whole EV equation come out right. Where do those come from and how do those continue to be supplied? And what do you do with them when they're no good anymore? Well, the good news is the batteries, these are really managed, thermally managed batteries that are going to last a long time right? 10 years or more, these batteries will last. And likely you'll keep your car for longer than 10 years. And when you do upgrade your battery, you likely will even get in new technology in the car when you upgrade, because you're going to be getting a new battery pack that may have a little different chemistry. So it's good. And in terms of then using those battery packs as a second life, there's tons of second life opportunities for battery packs that are used in cars now as well. There's of course, recycling, where you can recycle the batteries and use the raw materials to potentially make new batteries. And then you can also use electric vehicle batteries for stationary storage for like a million different applications, whether that's for a charging station or a wind farm or solar. These batteries actually will have a long usable life. It's just dependent on how you transition them even out of the car. So once they've been in a car for 10 years, they've got even more life after that, just not in a mobile environment like in a vehicle. That's really interesting you mentioned that. And also interesting that you suggested somebody might actually keep this car for a decade so that it, with software upgrades and battery upgrades, becomes essentially future-proof. I mean, let's be honest, cars are so well-made now that it's a bit of a mystery that so many of them get traded in based on lease structures in two years, and you've got fleets and fleets of brand new cars that, I mean, they'll just never break. That's absolutely the case. Really, in an EV, it's very simple. There's not a lot of moving parts in an EV. An electric motor lasts a really, really long time. I think I have my grandmother's mixer from like the 1950s, right? It has an electric motor in it. It works fine. So that's what you can expect from these cars. Very low maintenance, very long lifespan. The thing on the car that's going to be the biggest wear item is probably tires. Even the brakes last a long time because of regenerative braking. So I think that will be a really great thing for consumers and the technology platforms that these are built on, like you said, are built in a way that is allowing for software updates and other things like that. So I think that they've got a long way to run. The bigger question is what mechanisms are there and what challenges have to be overcome to get consumers to really jump ship from their ICE cars to one of your EVs, short of government mandate, which eventually is going to put internal combustion out of business. But in the next few years, what are the incentives that would get people to make that decision? It's funny. I mean, people say, doctor says stop smoking. Well, of course, I know I shouldn't smoke and I know I shouldn't drink as much. I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do that. I know it's all good for me, but damn it, I'm not going to do any of it because I'm just too set in my ways. I think the difference there is some of those vices that you mentioned are quite fun. But when you when you drive an EV versus a gas car, I think you can see right away that there's some real benefits, right? And I think that's going to be a big focus of ours. This is a question that keeps me up at night, of course, because it's like, how do you get people to care about the stuff that you're working on and that they see it the same way that you do? I think the first thing is we got to get as many people behind the wheel as an EV because driving one is such an important proof point. For me, I'm at this intersection of, I remember computers coming out, the internet, cell phones, those things. This I see is another moment like that. I remember my dad saying, we don't need a computer in the house. Those are going to be the same sort of conversations to electric vehicles. Like, ah, I'm still going to drive my gas burner. It's That's just the way I've been doing it forever. But it'll take the proof point of really getting behind the wheel and using it and seeing the benefit, especially the cost benefit, because they're much, much less expensive to own to really get there. So that's why I focused on what I think are the three biggest objections, price, range, and charging. And so when we look to come to market with the ID4, that's what we really tackled head on. How do we get a price point that's as closely comparable to the other big competitors? Let's not compete with the Teslas and the other EVs that are out there. How do we go mass market? How do we compete with those folks out there that are selling 
hundreds of thousands of units a year just on one model. Secondly, how do we get a range where people are like, okay, well, that's like a tank of gas. It's like the same amount of range I'd get on my car anyways. And the third thing is like, once you solve those two, the third question is like, but where do I charge it? And to really be able to say, hey, you could charge it all over the country and you could do it, it's going to cost you nothing. So if you're paying $50 to fill up your tank with gas right now, and now you can use electricity and do it for free and get the same sort of performance in terms of range, pretty compelling. So we're really looking to put together a compelling story so we can show that we've got something here that's pretty special and really makes that transition to an EV, I think, a really logical one. And people don't necessarily buy cars on logic. I know otherwise everyone would be driving like a $12,000 car, but as logical as we could make it, I think we we tried to do it. By the way, it doesn't look like a freak show on wheels. I mean, so many of these special interest cars, whether it's hydrogen or some of the earlier products, especially from Asia, that really look like something from outer space and not terribly appealing from an aesthetic standpoint, I've always looked to Volkswagen to produce intelligent and sober designs that somewhat stand the test of time and don't look like a Nehru jacket or a pair of bell bottoms or a leisure suit three years after you bought the car. So from a look standpoint, these things certainly aren't going to embarrass anyone. I guess they're fun to drive too, because they're kind of quick, huh? Yeah, quick. I mean, instant torque with an electric vehicle. So it is very quick. The car will be offered in both a rear wheel drive, which is something that VW hasn't had in a long time, a rear wheel drive, rear motor. Imagine that. Back to our roots. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then we're going to have an all-wheel drive too. So an all-wheel drive version, which I think a lot of people are waiting for, that'll come later in the year. The all-wheel drive version is zero to 60 in under six seconds. So that's fast. And the zero to 30 is even more impressive because it's that instant torque kind of throw you back in the seat that I think most people love about an EV. And because the battery pack is in the floor, it's like a pancake underneath the seats, underneath the car. Very low center of gravity, tons of torsional rigidity. It's, it's fun to drive. It doesn't feel like an SUV. It embodies everything about what Volkswagen has been for decades, but it does it in a totally new way. Well, Obviously, you're not only an early adopter, you're a, literally a pioneer going across the U.S. and not a Conestoga, but certainly something as novel and previously unseen. I think it's great that you made the trek and really proved the concept. And I'm going to look forward to driving one of these cars, too. Obviously, VW is a huge corporate entity, and you've got a gazillion automotive brands, everything from Bugatti to a Golf, Porsche, Bentley, Lamborghini, Audi, I mean, everybody's in for the party. Is the ID4 essentially going to trickle up to some of those other brands, or does some of that brand technology trickle down to Volkswagen? How does it all work behind the curtain, so to speak? Can you give us an insight there? The good thing is, I think you've seen this from the VW group for years. You may look at your mid-90s Porsche and see a VW part on it, and there's some carryover for some of those things, and it's good because that's how you get to scale. Very few companies can have the scale effects that VW has. So what that means is to the end user is a more affordable car or a more tested part. And all those things have benefit. I think we're going to continue to use our scale effects, especially with electrification. You know, as we look to continue to scale battery manufacturing and other things, platforms, VW is known for having multiple vehicle platforms and we build lots of vehicles off of. You look at the Cayenne, for example, the Cayenne Porsche was built off of a platform that also VW had for the Touareg. There's going to be some platform sharing between Audi and Porsche and others. So we're going to continue that. And it's particularly helpful with electric vehicles because electric vehicles really are a skateboard design, right? So if we can build a great skateboard, that means that you can put a lot of different variants in terms of vehicles on top. So a pretty exciting time to be in automotive. Obviously, EVs are a whole new concept to embrace for the majority of the motoring public. The other specter that has a lot of people scared, but during rush hour traffic has me absolutely dreaming for a coming that can't be quick enough is autonomy. Good heavens, if we could simply let the cars and the infrastructure do the driving, we certainly wouldn't end up with things like the 405 freeway at 5 p.m. on a Friday afternoon because traffic would actually move and it would move smoothly. Do these EV platforms afford any 
benefits to the development of autonomous systems? Is there an advantage there? Absolutely. An EV is technically like always on. The battery pack has energy, it's on. So running those systems, they can run all the time, like a computer, right? So they're not having to restart. And as long as the car is charged, they get to come up with those systems. The other thing is EVs are really seen as the technology platform for most OEMs, everybody. Even in the ID4, it comes standard with what we call IQ drive, which is a semi-autonomous system. It's like level two autonomy, which would do lane centering, ACC, so automatic cruise control and those things. And it's amazing. And we used it probably in 90% of our driving for driving across country. You're not reading Harry Potter. Not reading Harry Potter. You don't want to do that. Obviously, you still have to keep your hand on the wheel. You got to keep your eye on the road. This is like a four-eye approach rather than a two-eye approach. It's like the car has a set of eyes for you as well. And I think that's extremely beneficial. A system like this could absolutely augment your driving and assist you and keep you out of harm's way if your attention were to be broken or anything else. So there is a lot of benefit there. It makes your car much safer because of that. So I would say these are fantastic systems that are evolving over time and they will evolve particularly well with EVs because with autonomy could come better efficiency with EVs because the car really handling itself can really work on the way it's using motors, the the battery power and everything else, you can start to see some really incredible things in terms of how fleets are used and everything else. I think autonomy certainly will have a huge impact on the automotive world and probably a much bigger impact to those leaky old cars with carburetors than electric cars do. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Share some background about yourself, if you can, your automotive interests and the road that brought you to VW. I've been interested in cars since I could remember. You know, it's a pretty similar story, I think, probably to a lot of people that you meet. Like, that was just the biggest fascination to me as a kid. And it came from a place of my dad being into cars, my grandfather being into cars. I have my grandfather's 1961 Jaguar in my garage right now. When he passed away, he left that to me. You know, there's also some meaningfulness in there. There's memories in cars. My dad still has the first car he ever owned from when he was 16. He bought that car, never sold it. So that's cool too. And I've been involved in the automotive industry since I've been about 18 years old. I put myself through college selling cars. I actually worked at a BMW dealership. So I dreamed about having BMWs as a kid. And then I worked in electric vehicles for nine years at Tesla. So I worked at Tesla as one of the first employees there and then have been very fortunate to kind of have lightning strike twice and to start with a small company and see it grow with Tesla to now work at one of the largest automakers and really try to help them evolve, which is just a dream of mine. When I was a kid, the Beetle was like the coolest car. Herbie was my favorite movie. And to say that I have had a place in this company's history is this is the stuff that you dream about when you're kids. Like when I'm older, I'm going to design cars. I'm going to work in the car business. To actually realize that dream is pretty profound. Dustin, what an incredible story. Well, I'm not going to let you get away so easily with just uh, dropping little hints about this and that, because that is a fascinating background. Okay. So you've wrenched on BMWs, you've sold cars, you had a hand in actually 
actually plugging Tesla into the wall for the first time. If you were there back in the founding years and were there for so long, you jump ship to Volkswagen to be able to take on an even bigger picture solution to the whole EV problem. But you got some old gas guzzlers in the garage too. First of all, your dad's a smart man. I've often advised whatever you do, I mean, unless it is literally running on three wheels and two cylinders, <laughs> never get rid of your first car. Keep your first car. What is that? What is it? It's a 1958 Chevrolet Biscayne. So a pretty cool car. Good heavens. Yeah. The first year with dual headlights. Yeah, it's got the dual headlights. <laughs> yeah. It's turquoise. I mean, you know, my love for cars just got, it came from riding around in that thing and having people wave at you. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. I mean, I could get used to this, uh, you know, and that was really what started it. Going to car shows. And if you have an old Chevy or have an old anything, you're, especially in those days, you're going to swap meets and car shows to try to keep those things running. So it just is something that's been a part of me forever. And it continues to be. It's a real passion. And to be able to work as part of your passion is a really unique thing. Well, you've got a pretty passionate vehicle in the garage too. Funny, we've had some guests on this show. Another gentleman who also has a 61 Jaguar. Tell me about your grandpa's car. It's a 1961 Mark II. It's English white over red. Pretty neat. I've had it for a little over a year. It was in a place where it was in a garage for many, many years and not driven. And I had it completely gone through and now it's back on the road. And it's been special because my oldest son has autism and he and I have really connected through this car now. So it's been a pretty interesting thing, bringing that, going through the whole experience of kind of reviving it. And then for that relationship that I've had with cars, I can see with my son too. So it's been a special thing and it continues to pay dividends. Not discounting the parent-child relationship that can sometimes be absolutely intoxicatingly embellished with a car in the middle. There's just nothing better than that. My dad owned a 61 Jag Mark II as well. So you will not get any argument from me that that car is in fact the most beautiful four-door sedan ever made. It's an absolute high watermark of design and as excellent in every way as was the XKE. Heck, it was the same engine. What's not to like about that? Maybe one of the best engines ever made. Leaks a little. Well, and the fuel <laughs> pump. I remember my dad kicking the hell out of that fuel pump. He'd open the trunk and give it a couple of whacks and try to get it going when it, the thing would stall. It was, uh, it, it was not without its own personality. Let's put it that way. It'll smell up the whole house when you bring it in the garage sometimes because it does have a really heavy fuel smell. But yeah, it's special to me. And I think, again, has in my life just shown me that a common interest can really be something that helps relationships, family, and other things. And it's really been a, a good thing for me. So, yeah. Putting on your future glasses, I mean, you think there'll be a place for old Jags and old Porsches and old BMWs and old Duesenbergs in the future? What, what are we going to do with these things, man? Some of the companies out there doing conversions on these things, too. I think when you saw the recent Royal Wedding, you saw they're driving an old E-Type electric, which is cool. I think that's really neat. And we We've made friends with a company out west called EV West that does conversions on old VW products, turns them into EVs. And really, when you think about it, it really is a great way to preserve some of these old cars. Because as much as I love some of these vintage vehicles, they can be difficult. And what's hard for me is having finding someone to even work on my jet. Potentially down the road, I don't know if my car is the right car for it, but it to save some of these older cars, to convert them to electric is a really interesting and kind of exciting proposition, I think, because you're probably going to get them to drive a little bit better than they did originally. And you're going to be able to kind of keep the grandeur and the glory of some of these old vehicles that maybe otherwise would go away. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I don't think car enthusiasm is going to die down, especially from vehicles like what we were talking about that just they'll never happen again. So they'll always be part of uh, history there. And I think they're going to continue to really delight people for a long time. 
Thanks to Dustin Krauss, Director of E-Mobility at Volkswagen, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.